It's great to have you with us. The Bible reading for this message is taken from Revelation chapter 6. It would be great if you could push pause on this video now, go and have a read of Revelation chapter 6, and then come back. In the Gospel of Mark in chapter 4, we read a story about a storm. The disciples and Jesus were crossing the Sea of Galilee, and a storm came up. And it was a bad storm. Uh, many of the disciples who were fishermen uh, were greatly afraid. There was great fear that gripped them. Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat. They went and woke him up because they were afraid they were going to die. Jesus got up and spoke to the storm. He told it to be still. And immediately the sea became completely calm. At the end of that story, the we read that the disciples uh, were more afraid of Jesus and what they witnessed him do than they were of the storm. Uh, the Apostle John has a very similar experience at the beginning of Revelation in chapter 1. Uh, bear in mind that the Apostle John had been one of Jesus' closest earthly friends. John had rather confidently described himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John felt so close to Jesus that he reclined his head on Jesus' chest during the Last Supper. I've got some close guy friends, but I can honestly say that I don't have many, any, uh, that have ever put their head on my chest while we were eating dinner. So when John has this reunion with Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, uh, with the uh, risen and ascended Jesus, uh, what does that look like? What does it involve? You know, a high five? Do they break out into a... Uh, a chorus of what a friend I have in Jesus? No, well, in Revelation chapter 1, this is what we read. John says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire, his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. When John saw Jesus in his glory, he fell at Jesus' feet as though he were dead. And, and that's not a figure of speech. He literally thought he was going to die. We need to understand that John get up, Jesus gave John this vision because John and his church and all subsequent churches since that time were going to go through a time of intense persecution and trouble and suffering. The book of Revelation tells us that the experience of the church in a world under judgment is going to be the experience of suffering. And Jesus knew that the only thing that would sustain them during a time like that was a vision of himself sitting victoriously above it all. If we are going to endure the terrors of the tribulations of this life, we need to see someone more awesome than the tribulations and the sufferings, and the terrible things that we see and experience. Uh, we don't need a Jesus 
uh, who is um, a missing piece in our dissatisfied, unfulfilled lives. We need a Jesus who rules the universe. And only in a glorious and mighty Savior will we find the confidence to face the horrors of the apocalypse. But I want you to think about this as we go into Revelation chapter 6. That the same one who calmed the storm is also the one who is behind the storm. He's also the one who sends the storm. Just keep that thought in the back of your mind as we open up Revelation chapter 6. And as we try to deal with what, we, what I'm calling a small God syndrome. Uh, this is what happens to us when our God is too small. You see, Revelation 6 deals with life as we know it and experience it to be, with all of its horrors, violence, conquest, plague, pestilence, and economic struggles, with inequality and death. All of these horrors are set in motion by the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus and at His command. They come directly out of chapter 5, and they have to do with who Jesus is. Now that might sound like a strange thing to say, but it flows out of the two roles that Jesus holds, that he is both our Savior and our Judge. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, we read, He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. There's the picture of Jesus in his role as Savior. But then in Acts chapter 17, we read these words, spoken also by the Apostle Paul, but in his sermon. He says, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Okay, that's a God that's far too small. It's a God that isn't real. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So who's that? Well, that's Jesus. Jesus is the man whom God has appointed to judge. And the proof of this is that he has raised him from the dead. And so what we see is that Jesus is the perfect combination of, of things that the world finds impossible to hold together. Jesus is both love and justice, both grace and truth, mercy and holiness, power and weakness. Now we might find it hard to hold these things together, but Jesus perfectly combines these so that there is no conflict between those two sides. He is the sovereign, majestic ruler over all things, and he is the one who gives his blood as a tender lamb. Now we need things to fit into our program. They must meet our expectations. They must uh, be congruous with our experiences. They must form part of our understanding. Nothing that Christ does is not full of purity and holiness. 
His anger and His love are gracious and good. And bringing those together, anger and love, uh, does not fit into our expectation or our program or our experience or our understanding. And I think it's seen most clearly back in chapter 5 when you have the, the ferocious lion pictured as the slaughtered lamb. There's the two-sidedness of Jesus uh, showing its face. And it might feel like a paradox to us. It might appear that these things would be in conflict. But the Bible is happy to hold them together, which means even though it might be beyond our comprehension or feel wrong, it is true nonetheless. So Revelation 4 and 5 speak of what might soon take place. It pictures a scroll uh, in the hand of the one who sits on the throne that contains the future history of the world. What will take place has already been written down, and what will take place has already been determined. And the time is from the resurrection of Jesus until his second coming and more. Back in chapter 5, there was no one worthy to take and open the scroll and put it into effect. But then we discover there is one, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the conquering, ravaging, savaging power of justice bringing punishment. But when John looks for the Lion, in chapter 5 and verse 6, he sees a Lamb, standing as though it had been slain. So the conquering Lion is the slain lamb. And to make the, the point even stronger, the Greek actually uses the diminutive. So it's not the lamb, it's the lammy. And as soon as he takes a scroll, all heaven breaks loose, and the center of the praise is worthy is Jesus, the lamb, to take the scroll and set history moving. The word worthy in Greek is the word axios, from which we get our word axis. It's worthiness that brings into balance something that was way out of balance. And so if you gather up all the evil and all the injustices in our world, all the lies and all the greed and all the corruption, and everything that makes up the brokenness of our world, who is heavy enough, who is big enough, who is powerful enough to unbalance all of that stuff and to bring order where there's chaos? Who can bring balance and unbrokenness to brokenness? Who has the power and the goodness to outweigh all of this and bring right and justice? Well, it's the lion and the lamb. And what qualifies to do this is not his vast power, but his death. For in chapter 5, we read the song, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God people from everywhere and every tongue. So at the center, we have the Lamb who conquered by being conquered, who gains victory by becoming the victim. It is the cross of Jesus that is the center of reality, that is the center of all of God's doing, and it is the center of human history. And so in chapter 6, we want to know what must soon take place next. Chapter 6 is really a brief history of history. Uh, it, it, it's the story uh, of the time uh, from the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus until the time when he returns on the last day, the day of the Lord. 
Now, we might look at the world and world events and history and think of the, that there is a randomness and a pervasiveness of stubbornness and meaningless brought on by evil. It's important for us as Christians to call evil evil, to say what it is, because we can fall into the trap of telling ourselves that, yes, there is something evil, but, you know, it's over there or it's over there and we're fine and life is fine. Uh, to think that somehow we can uh, bring evil under control through politics and good governments or just have a, having a positive outlook and positive attitude on life. The Bible is not so naive. It tells us that greed and envy and luxury and arrogance, they are all evil and they are deeply ingrained in each one of us. What is more is that those things exercise a destructive effect on us and in our families, and our world. You see, we don't need Jesus or the Bible to tell us that the world is full of troubles. But we do need his explanation of history if the troubles are not going to be meaningless. It might look meaningless and look out of control, but what chapter 6 tells us is that Jesus, the Lion and the Lamb, is bringing order and arrangements and moving my purposes forward through history, weaving them through history, bringing my kingdom through the events of history. So for today, we're looking at the scroll that the Lamb took. It contains seven seals. We're just looking at the six that are in chapter 6, and next week we'll look at chapter 7 and the seventh seal and the interlude that's there. And I want to approach this passage uh, by looking at the two questions that are asked in chapter 6. I'm not going to do this sequentially. There's two questions that are asked, one in verse 10, one in verse 17. The first one is in verse 10. It's in the middle of the fifth seal, and it's the question, How long, O Lord, until you deal with evil? When we open the fifth seal, so remember there's a scroll, it's got seven seals and wax seals, and the lamb takes the scroll and he's opening the seals and opening the seal and opening, and then the scroll will be laid bare, but this is what it takes to open the scroll. We get to the fifth seal, we're taken up into heaven. The first four seals, they happen on earth, we'll come back to them. And we're taken to heaven, we're taken to this altar where the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and their witness for Christ are. And they call out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? The cry of these saints is the cry not of vengeance or revenge, but a vindication of the gospel for which they died. Uh, these words of the saints convey a, a sense of uh, impatient waiting. How much longer, O oh Lord? And yet when we approach these saints, we discover that what we have there is a dramatic way of picturing every true Christian from all of history. For who of us has not at some point in our life of following Jesus Christ as Lord said, How long, O oh Lord? How long until this comes to an end? Uh, the word of these saints, they were slain. That word slain is the same word that is used of the lamb that was slain. These are the people who were slain with the lamb. They are participating in the death of Jesus. It's a picture of those people who had 
given over their lives, who have laid down their lives based on the word of God. And it's the cry of every faithful heart, Lord, how long until you will remove evil and vindicate yourself? Remove evil from the world and from my family and from me. The cry of uh, these saints uh, is you know, to the Lord who is holy and true. Um, he was just and righteous, uh, but who want to know because they become weary of evil, how much longer will you allow it to continue? And if we're going to understand this rightly, we need to see it in the context of what's taking place with the first four seals. So we move backwards to the first four seals. And the question that the saints ask, as said in the context of the first four seals, will bring us an understanding that we so desperately need. The, the events of chapter 6 are common events to every generation. Verse 1, we are introduced to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. A lot of uh, people think that God reserves judgment to the end. You're right at the end, then God will judge. Uh, that God will only judge the living and the dead, but until then, he doesn't really get too involved with the nitty-gritty uh, of the things that are going on in this world, unless they're nice things or beautiful things or lovely things, because that's what a loving God would do. That's what he'd be involved in. He wouldn't be involved in all of the other stuff. If he was, how could we call him good? Well, chapter 6 actually says something that isn't said a lot, uh, by people in our day and age, uh, and it isn't particularly loved or accepted, never makes it into a top left 10 list of things about God, but it is nonetheless true and important, and something that we need to understand if we're going to ensure that we have a big view of God and not a small view of God. So here are the four horsemen. Uh, the first horseman, I heard a loud voice from one of the four living creatures, come. And I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as conqueror, bent on conquest. For the first horseman, conquest is his only aim. Anytime you see force used against the innocent, weapons to gain power and dominance, well, then the white horse is riding. Then the lamb opened the second seal, and another living creature said, Come, and another horseman came out, a fiery red one, and its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. The red horse uh, is, represents any time peace is removed. When you experience unrest, even at a family level, the red horse is riding. The black horse, in verse 5, the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and there was a black horse, and its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Uh, this one takes a little bit more work to understand, uh, but basically the black horse is about uh, famine and economic inequality. When the black horse is riding, there are terrible economic problems. There is just enough money. Uh, to be able to buy food for today, for yourself. And yet at the same time, you've got this disparity because the oil and the new wine, they just keep on flowing. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. 
And then you've got the fourth horse. The fourth seal's open. Come, and I looked, and there before me was a pale horse, and its rider was named Death. It's kind of paley, pale green. Um, it's kind of the idea behind it. Its rider was Death. Hades was followed behind him, and they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword and famine and plague by wild beasts of the earth. Uh, and so this pale horse carries pestilence and, and anything that brings about death. What we need to understand, friends, is that the Bible never sentimentalizes evil or goodness. At every level of the world that you and I are involved in, there are various kinds of evil. And what the Bible does, it removes the masks of these horsemen and shows us what they are. Uh, so what, what's taking place here, we're not looking for specific events that happen in history to say horsemen, horsemen, horsemen. We're recognizing that this is a brief history of history. This is what it has been like since Jesus ascended and took the seal and opened it. God is behind the horsemen. You see, the, the key to all of this is understanding that the horsemen are set going by the Lamb himself. He releases the horsemen. And what's more is that he uh, gives them. The, so the, the first horseman, he was given a crown and he rode out. The second horseman, uh, he was given a sword. And the, and the fourth horseman, he was given power over a uh, quarter uh, of the earth. The, the power that they hold is power that was given to them. And it's power that was given to them by the Lamb himself. This is such a fundamental doctrine that we need to understand that I'm going to carry on pushing the point. The forces of greed and famine and war and plague and conquests and all the things that are mentioned here, they are not the supreme power in history. The Lamb is the supreme power in history. The powers of evil are bounded and limited by the Lamb of God, but it is also the Lamb of God who opens the seals and gives authority to the horsemen. This is more than God allowing nasty things to happen. This is the sovereign Christ in control of all that is good and evil. We might be okay that sometimes God allows evil things to happen, but this is saying even more than that. Jesus was the one who calmed the storm, but who sent the storm? Well, God did. God was the one who was behind the storm. In understanding the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, we must understand that not one atom not one molecule, not one electron uh, is ever out of place or out of the control of God. He holds each one in his hands and in its place. When Jesus says that the Lord knows the exact number of hairs on your head, he wasn't talking about a round figure. He knows the exact number of hairs on your head. He used that instance not to say how great God's knowledge is, but but how uh, or how, how great it is that God knows the number of hairs on your heads, but saying, if God knows the number of hairs on your head, that's a small thing compared to all of the sovereignty of God. So he knows it down to that small detail, but he knows everything in small and in big, and he holds it all together, including evil. 
Now, I'm not saying that God is evil. No one here is saying that God is evil. He is holy and he is righteous and he is good. But if all that he does is to allow evil to happen, then there are parts of his creation where he's not really in control. And then we end up with a God who is only involved with the happy and positive things in life. And there are entire vast areas where he's not in control and where things are out of his hands. Now let me say it again. The Lamb is good and holy and righteous and gracious and utterly sovereign over evil, including the evil that you and I experience. And I find that profoundly hopeful. And I hope that you will find that profoundly hopeful. And that is the basis in which we can call out, How long, O Lord? The issue of evil is with us all the time, and not just out there, also in here, from one another and from ourselves. The death of Jesus changes everything, including how God works in history. Now, we're never allowed to be too specific to say, oh, there is the judgment of God over there on that person or on that nation because of this or because of that. Jesus actually warns us in Luke chapter 13, never ever to do that. Never to get specific about the judgment of God. And it'd be helpful if you would go and read Luke chapter 13. Push pause now, go read Luke chapter 13 from verse 1 to verse 9. But we can say generally that the suffering and judgments of history are part of Jesus establishing his kingdom on earth. Even in the most difficult circumstances that you and I face, the slain lamb is there at work bringing repentance and limiting pain and limiting suffering. The wonderful thing about history is that Jesus and his judgments in history are not just punishments. They are there to bring about repentance. That passage Luke 13 talks about it. The passage in Acts 17 from earlier on, that also spoke about it. That means that we as Christians ought to be the most realistic people on the planet. We look at the future and we know what will happen. Conquest, strife, death, famine, economic ruin, and we expect those things. We expect justice not to be done in our world. But that is not fatalism. Fatalism is sub-Christian. The world is so bad, the world can just go wherever it wants, and I'm not going to let it bother me or affect me, and I'm not going to get involved. That, that's hatred and self-righteousness. You know, in the New Testament, when famine struck, the apostles went around the empire and they collected famine relief money for the churches who were most badly affected. When we ask, how long, O Lord, it's not fatalism. For God gives us the most wonderful answer. In chapter 6, verse 11, we read, then each of them, those are the ones asking the question, was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. Uh, this is an idea that's echoed in uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, where we read that God is not uh, slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness, but rather he is patient. Uh, wanting none to perish, but all to repent. So here is the core truth behind what's happening in this world. The core truth of history is that God is waiting for the full number of those who will follow Jesus to come in to the kingdom. What people wear in, is important in, in Revelation. I suppose in general, but in Revelation, what people wear is especially important. 
White robes is a picture of a life cleansed and forgiven and pure of all evil. Uh, these robes are given to us by Jesus, uh, not on the basis of our goodness, but as his own free gift to us. It's a picture of what is meant to be a real Christian. And what the right white robe does here, it is a source of refreshment and rest. So that if the lamb is going to deal with all evil and eradicate it, and if the lamb has found a way to wrap us in his righteousness as he deals with evil, he will not destroy us. And that means that I don't have to take things into my own hands. I don't have to be judge, jury, or executioner for anyone. I can trust Jesus for that. Uh, the lamb and the robe is the only way that we can avoid cynicism and despair in this world. When we find ourselves completely overwhelmed by something that is utterly beyond your control, well, you know that you can know that you don't have to be in control because Jesus is in control and he is judging the world now, even as he brings us to a point where he brings all of those smaller judgments into one final judgment. And a day is coming when evil will finally be done away with. Yes, there is little justice in the world, but in the day of wrath, justice will be done, and the one who died for us is the one who will bring it. He will make things right, at the right time. And until that time comes, he provides for us refreshment and rest by giving us this truth, by revealing to us the goings on of what God is doing in the world now. Until the time comes, know this of yourself, that if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then you are wrapped up in his goodness and in his grace and in his saving righteousness.